Columbia, St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Yes, welcome back. How's it going, Lindsay? Um, I'm pretty excited. Yeah. I mean, I'm always excited about every episode, but this one in particular is yeah. kind of. I mean, I know we've said we're not going to do bigger movies. We've, we've contradicted ourselves multiple times, many here. times yeah. on this podcast. But this one, very, very much so. We're doing an iconic film, which is Alien, which has been so much talked about. But it is the 40th anniversary, yeah. and we can't help but celebrate such a great film. On it's a big deal. Yeah. 40 years, geez, since this movie came out. It's crazy. So lot, lots to talk about. So many things um, starting one thing. We've got a St. Louis native, uh, mm-hmm. Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the script to Alien and kind of like tumultuous story uh, with the script leading into the production of this. With, yeah. um, a lot of know, backstory lot of, Like a backstory, a lot of history. So we'll kind of get into that, get into the production, but also kind of talk about Ridley Scott and, of course, the cast with some of one of our faves. You know, you might have heard of her, Sigourney Weaver. It's kind of a... She's kind yeah, of a thing on this yeah. podcast. We're just gotta, yeah, we're just going <laughs> to fit her in. She's been, Somehow. we've talked about her almost as many times as we've talked about Bill Murray. And he's, <laughs> up, he's 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 included in a, pretty much you know, every episode. one of the segments, so. yeah. We'll also talk about the franchise that this initial movie spawned. Whether you like it or not, there are, what, what are we at? Three three sequels to this? Uh, oh no, more. It's Alien yeah, vs. Predator? Count, yeah, I don't, count those. I don't know if I count and that. And then if you count Prometheus and all this other stuff. There's a lot. Well, oh yeah, never mind. Yeah, well, there's a lot. That's where my brain stops yeah. is right after Alien yeah. Resurrection. Yeah, we'll get into it. There's there's quite a few. So we'll go behind the scenes and also go into what, what sets this apart from other movies. Yeah. Um, and then uh, after our discussion, get into our picks of the week. What was your pick of the week? It was, I went pretty far back for this one. Uh, I went with a movie called The Children's Hour. It starred Veronica, or co-starred Veronica Cartwright, who is an alien, the only other female character besides Ripley. And what about you? I went with uh, uh, Connecting It Via Alien with Blue Collar, which was uh, Paul Schrader's uh, directorial debut, the writer of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Um, ah. And stars uh, Yafet Koto, uh, Harvey Keitel, and a uh, very uh, rare, I would say, dramatic performance by Richard Pryor. That's and pretty cool. A- excellent film. And Yafet Koto is Veronica Cartwright's. They're they're two of the last remaining folks, right? At yeah. The, at Alien, yeah. yeah. Minus. Uh, well, Sigourney. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And so it's been a it's been a few episodes since we've got to hear from our friend Justin Hayward. Uh, he did some back-to-back work for us with uh, yeah. Fargo and Casino. Yeah. But uh, he is back again for this episode to give us, kind of dig deeper into the technical aspects of, of Alien. So, and I, again, I, I can't thank the guy enough for taking the time to, you know, use his expertise and create these, you know, short segments for us for, for some of these movies we're doing. So Yeah, I can't we'll, wait to hear what he has to say. Yeah, so we'll hear from him uh, later in the episode as well. 
So, uh, and then as always, our Murray moments. But before uh, we get into our first clip of Alien, not a whole lot needs to be said, but if you can give us just like a brief lowdown on the, the plot of this film. Who out there hasn't seen Alien? There's probably a few people that haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So deep in space, we find this crew of the starship Nostromo. They're awakened from their cryosleep to this distress signal or this signal that's uh, emerging from a planet in space. They land and don't mean to, but they, they bring back with them a parasite that attaches itself to one of the crew members' faces. And just when they think that the creatures died, well, they find out that that was just the baby version and it's implanted Inside the chest cavity of one of the crew members, it bursts open and runs amok on the ship. And I mean, it's it's <laughs> it, 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 what's wild to me is that this, uh, you know, we'll get into this, but this is such a terrifying and it's a deliberately paced film. Like, I, you know, I've heard people tell me they think this movie is pretty slow and boring, but it I love that it kind of takes its time and develops its characters and like. When you know that chest bursting scene is iconic, as you know the yeah. uh, shower scene and Psycho, but it's a pretty, pretty good while into the film, and then the, the movie, you know, the movie does ramp up. It gets, it gets to a point where it's just like it's really moving, but it takes its time. But I really enjoy that. I think it helps build the tension, and um, really adds to that whole feeling of just feeling isolated yeah, in space yeah. and feeling alone, and it 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 preys on a lot of fears that we have just as as human beings yeah well we'll go to a clip we'll come back we'll get into some alien for you unless somebody has got a better idea we'll proceed with dallas's plan what and then don't blame the others <laughs> no you're out of your mind you got a better idea yes i said that we abandoned the ship we get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here. We take our chances and just hope that somebody picks us up. The shuttle won't take four. Well, then why don't we draw straws? I'm not going in these drawers. I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. Let's hear it. It's using the air shafts. That's the only way. We'll move in pairs. We'll go step by step and cut off every bulkhead and every vent until we have it cornered, and then we'll blow it the fuck out into space. Is that acceptable to you? It means killing it. Obviously, it means killing it. But we have to stick together. Uh, The tagline for this movie was, In space, no one can hear you scream. And it's one of the things, I think the biggest thing that that sets this movie apart is that what makes it so scary is that it plays upon your fear and it plays upon isolation and also like this feeling of the unknown and being afraid of you just know that this thing is big and it's killing people one by one and you do not, there there is no feasible way that you could take this thing down or that you could face it versus someone that's in a scream mask that it's a regular that it's a person it's something that's familiar and even though it's scary 
it still seems earthly. And in Alien, this is completely foreign and no one knows how to deal with it. Another aspect of this for me is the character of Ripley sets this all apart. Um, I think originally the script was written as a um, kind of neutral gender and then that was assigned based on casting. So that really wasn't set up. So the idea that Ripley, who kind of is this final girl character that was a trope that came out of the 70s of like the last remaining character being a woman who triumphs over whatever evil it is, that you don't really realize that that final girl, that final person is going to be Ripley because she's not the captain of the, the ship, the Nostromo. You just really aren't thinking that she's going to be the one in charge up until that happens and that's when you're like well the captain of the ship just got off what do we do now yeah that, well to me like and, and now I'll, I'll be upfront about this mm-hmm. I've, I've never really been the biggest science fiction fan and don't get me wrong I like some science fiction movies but in alien being one of them and aliens but to me what really sets this movie apart which to me makes it seem different from most science fiction movies that I'm familiar with or have seen is that most science fiction movies that I've seen, especially from the fifties and sixties, including Star Trek, including Star Wars, there was really no sense of danger in any of those movies. Yeah. There was really no sense of impending doom. Now certainly characters were put in situations, but I always felt like there was no sense of dread. Like I always felt like the good guys were very clear the bad guys were very clear. Even if a character was in danger, I never really thought anyone would get killed. Alien is just totally not the case. And I think that's what really sets itself apart. And that's what really made this movie kind of a shocker for people. And this, I think that's why this movie's up there on, it always shows up on list of like best horror movies and best sci-fi movies yeah. because there is a sense of horror and it is uncomfortable and it is scary. And it does make you feel put yourself in the situation of like, yeah, we are all going to get picked off here. And just uh, uh, jumping off a little bit from what you said about how we hadn't really seen aliens like this before. The the concept of alien was thought of before Star Wars came out and no one really wanted to touch it because it was just kind of like the idea of it was B movie or Star Trek or, or something like that. It just didn't seem like something that was going to be scary necessarily or something that they could um, make into something scary. And then Star Wars blew up and the studio had Alien and it was just anything that had had to do with space or anything like that. They were like, well, that's what we have. We're going to green light that. Yeah. Alien was a con- conceived uh, long before Star Wars mm-hmm. um, by the idea of writers Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusset. Shusset. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he got story credit, um, not really talked about too often in the lineage of the making of Alien, but uh, Dan O'Bannon has a big part in that history, really all the way down to, um, you know, he, he was connected to getting a lot of the team together that did a lot of the production design Mm -hmm. and mainly what I can gather from interviews that I've read is that it was Dan O'Bannon's first experience going through the studio system and dealing with 
bringing a script to a studio and a studio taking control. And it seems like there were many other writers that put their spin on uh, the script. It went through some revisions. Multiple things were added uh, before the movie became what it was. But I think I think up until they land on the planet, it's like straight up all of Dan O'Bannon and then it becomes mixed with yeah. him, studio people. Um, I, I want to say there were like upwards of like eight, eight people yeah, involved and, in throwing in ideas. Ultimately, I think it's a, it's a solid script and what, you know, uh, whatever studio Medellin went on, I don't think it, it certainly didn't damage the movie because it, it came out yeah. as an excellent film. But, uh, Dan O'Bannon got sole screenwriting credit, and uh yeah i think it is an interesting way to uh approach a science fiction film i think it was pitched as truck drivers in space is what mm-hmm. i think dan o'bannon's pitch was and i like that concept and i think that it makes the movie more relatable even in the beginning when they're talking about bonuses and extra time and where you know stuff that would concern Anyone. Every day, anyone, yeah, you know, yeah. like, okay, well, we're talking about money and work and overtime. And, and they're not won't... too technical, like astronaut saying something that's like, like even in Star Wars, they, they get very technical. Yeah, and like a lot things. of words that were created that exist in this universe, that universe that aren't, but a lot of the language that's used in Alien is language that's used in our real world. And though no one seems alarmed that there's extraterrestrials, it still feels like very much within a, a reality that is based in like our reality. Yeah. It just feels like it's yeah, in space, but it feels like people of today in space. What br- makes this movie so good is the universe that was created and it is amazing. I mean, and the design of this film and a lot of credit is given to Ridley Scott and Ridley Scott is a is a very visionary filmmaker and I think that he had a lot of input on let's make this this gigantic set let's make everything connected it's not just a set piece it's like they built this ship on a huge set and you could walk through the ship and they could shoot in there like they built the whole the whole ship was an entire sound stage so yeah. if they needed to get from point a to point b they had to walk through all of those tunnels that you see and then on the opposite end of that we have the derelict spaceship that they enter and bring back the alien life form you know all the interiors of that ship and the uh that room with the the alien egg sacks um were a lot that was painted designed and uh, built by hr geiger uh, who was also very instant had to play a big part in the movie and um designed the adult alien that they we see and uh, had uh, a lot of conceptual art that that dated back to you know early early on before production um uh, you know, Dan O'Bannon was a big fan of of his H.R. Uh, Geiger's um, con- conceptual artwork. Just looking at the dude, like he he looks like a a dark soul who's got a lot of creepy stuff going on in his head, and it really comes out. And I and I think that his visuals and just his ideas were so captivating to Dan O'Bannon and uh, Ridley Scott. It was a perfect marriage between all of them. Like. Alien would not be what it is with without H.R. Geiger's involvement. And I and I think that the alien itself, this alien is almost like prehistoric. Looks more like an animal, like a creature 
from the unknown. And I think that's what makes it much more scary because there are beings that are more powerful and bigger than us and maybe not as intelligent, but put in a situation where you don't have a way out. It's a much different story. And I think this really taps into that. And I think I love the way that the alien creature is made to be more of like a prehistoric animal. It also helps that the actor that that played the alien i hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly it's correctly it's balaji badejo that he is over or he was over seven feet tall so on top of being a strange reptilian insect human that just without the alien costume it's also a over seven foot tall man underneath that and i and i love that you know 70s and even into the 80s even into 90s you know, generally a man in a rubber suit, but the the way that they've advanced mm-hmm. in making it scarier and more believable. And even in this, this feels like it's strange how much it doesn't feel like a man in, in a rubber suit. And maybe it's because I think the alien's really only on screen for a total of like four minutes or something like that. Well, I do think that less is more in this movie. And I yeah. think that this is a very deliberately paced film. It is very calculated. It is very slow, and you see very little of the alien, but I think that's a good thing. I like that, you know, we just get a little bit here and there, and then finally we, it, it is all revealed. I think a lot of movies show too much too soon, and then there's there's not much left to the imagination. But we'll go to another clip, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about the cast of this film, uh, a lot of first starts for some mm-hmm. people, and... Uh, talk a little bit about Ridley Scott and we'll talk a little bit about the sequels. All right. How do we kill it, Ash? There's got to be a way of killing it. How? How do we do it? You can't. It's bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. Survival. And all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. What? I can't lie to you about your chances, but... You have my sympathies. So, talking about the cast, I mean, this is a like a lot of movies that tend to be ones that we love and talk about on this podcast, <laughs> they are ensemble pieces. Yeah. And I think everybody functions great. And I do like the idea. I mean, and this has been said by uh, Dan O'Bannon and I believe Ridley Scott as well, that this is the future. We, the, you know, this was 1979 when this came out, the idea that in the future we have these male, female, different races um, all working together there's no hierarchy there's no this and that sadly we're 40 years into the future and and that's still uh still just a th- concept that <laughs> that people can't seem to get behind 
um, for the most part, which is really just depressing. But yeah, it is. But anyway, the cast, you know, so we have uh, Yafet Koto, Harry Dean Stanton, Tom Skerritt, uh, Veronica Cartwright, John Hurt, John Hurt, of course, Sigourney Weaver. And a lot of these folks were in a lot of TV, a lot of films. 60s, 70s TV shows. Yeah, none were household names, but uh, multiple actors in this turned this down, um, Tom Skerritt being one of them, because, again, like we said at the time, science fiction films were not something that anybody really wanted to throw on the resume. But once this became a, a movie with... Uh, director and the thing is is like people knew about Ridley Scott like he was a huge commercial director and then did the duelist which got a lot of acclaim and so people were excited especially uh, British actors like John Hurt were excited to work with Ridley Scott just him being attached to the project made people want to jump on board and um, this was Sigourney Weaver's first film role very first film role which is Pretty amazing. I mean, she was, you know, we've talked about Sigourney Weaver multiple times on the podcast. Yeah, a big theater actor. And, you know, uh, Veronica Cartwright, who plays Lambert, she originally thought that she, I mean, she'd been around too in 60s, 70s TV and and movies. I'll talk a little bit about her later. But um, she thought that she had the character of Ripley basically in, until like... It, until like a, a meeting or like reading or something and and it wasn't like a reading but pretty late in the game she realized oh i'm not that character okay and initially she was kind of disappointed anyway i like i like that little tidbit throwing yeah, that in there and and this is a movie that i've read where people didn't get her along that great and there's it it always surprises me when I see when I hear these stories of like, oh, like no one got along. And, and that is, it's like, you know, you're an actor, but it's a job. You've got, I mean, personalities clash. But this is a movie that where I feel like all the characters functioning all work and they bring this movie to life. And, um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more with my pick of the week because that was a similar situation where we have these characters on screen. They're like great friends, but yeah. in real life, they were ready to slit each other's throats. So it's 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 a, a testament to good acting. Mm-hmm. It is a testament to a director that can hold it all together. And this, to me, I think everybody is really perfect. Um, I'll always, always, always watch anything with Harry Dean Stanton in it. He, you love him, I know. I love Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> He's one of my favorite actors, and this is one of up there with one of my favorite roles of his. And he's perfect by just being chill and 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 sitting back, and he can do right. so much right. with so little. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I heard that that the thing, the main beef behind the scenes was that because Sigourney Weaver was kind of green in their eyes as far as film goes or TV acting, like yes, she's been around for a long time with with stage acting, and that's where Ridley Scott where he became impressed by her um but a lot of people thought that she didn't really have the chops to pull this part off and that's kind of that's what i heard it was about and then yafet koto i i heard that he that the little fight scene that they have where she finally where ridley finally like she has to step up and take charge of the situation that that whole interaction was kind of 
I mean, not real, but that it was like tensions were kind of high in the room at that point. And that there were, that maybe there was a beef between them. I heard that it was uh, like a real beef kind of, but then I also heard that Ridley Scott told him to kind of poke her and get her mad. Well, I will say despite any alleged onset drama, um, from what I've read, uh, once you know, people started seeing the dailies, the actors and the producers, uh, just seeing how amazing the set design was and the, you know, the, the characters coming together, the acting coming together. Um, there was sort of a sense that this was definitely going to be not your run of the mill science fiction film, that this was going to be, uh, like a special movie that was going to really take hold of things. It was going to do really well. And, uh, last but not least, uh, we can't, uh, not not mention the most uh one of the most iconic characters of uh science fiction films but um well Lindsay. all right so we want to go into talking about the multiple sequels that came after uh alien but before we do um none of these movies would be possible if it weren't for the sigourney weaver character of ripley i said this earlier in the podcast that she you don't expect her to be the hero of the story. And then she kind of emerges as somewhat of like a unassuming hero. She doesn't, she's, she's running from this creature, but the whole time she has been the one that is, has been by the book. I mean, hell, none of this would have happened if they just would have listened to her and followed protocol and not let someone infected with a parasite onto the ship in the first place. The whole time Ripley has been, in charge of herself, in charge of her emotions more than anyone. It's not just Lambert, the other female character that's like emotional and anxiety riddled. Everybody is not in control of their emotions, including the robot Ash. If it weren't for Ripley, I mean, I think she is what people remember most from from all of these movies. Her character is really tragic in a lot of ways. I feel like at the end of Alien, there's some sense of hope that she's going to wherever she's going to hopefully she's going to be picked up by another ship i mean the it ends with her going into hypersleep hopefully being picked up by someone we know in the sequels that doesn't necessarily happen as fast as she would like it to happen but from that moment on her character does not she has no other purpose than to exist to defeat further incarnations of this alien. And in a lot of ways, she's a tragic hero that never really meant to be a hero. Um, she's scared, but she's still the smartest person in, in all of this. I was thinking a little bit more about this that, that if you mind, if you, if you don't mind, Justin, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jonesy. And Jonesy, who is Ripley's cat, um, who has a bit part in this and and his relationship. No, please do. And I, it's only appropriate. I saw you're wearing your Jonesy shirt tonight, which. Uh, yeah, it's like only like the greatest present you've ever given me. Thanks. I just want to focus on Jonesy real quickly. I feel like Jonesy is way more important than we than we realize. For all intents and purposes, he is Ripley's child. He is the character that Ripley cares the most about and views kind of like as a as a child. And I think we see that a little bit more in the second Alien 
movie when when Ripley has a, a bond with the character of Newt, the little girl. But in this, it's almost like Jonesy is like the, the cat version of, of, of Newt. So we have this baby, in essence, this uh, vulnerable creature that Ripley is kind of the mother of, we'll say. So this sets Ripley up as a mothering character. This idea of motherhood runs totally underneath all of this movie. And here's why. So we're set up to feel like Ripley is Jonesy's mother. We have the voice of the ship that is called Mother that's housed in this like quiet, soundproof, womb-looking, warm environment. So we have this idea of motherhood underneath the surface. And then we have the alien who is kind of this anti-mother character because, excuse this term, she kind of, in order to procreate, this thing basically face rapes someone and impregnates a human host in this case. And then that human host is forced to give birth from being raped. I don't think I'm alone in this theory because there is a lot of like talk about how there is kind of like some violent sexual undercurrent. This idea that, that Ripley is a mother character and the alien is the anti-mother is something that's totally true. In essence, the alien is violating the whole idea of motherhood by forcing birth upon another creature. Maybe this is like a little too abstract, but I I don't think it is. And maybe it wasn't intended, but it's certainly in there. The idea, it's not like a rape story, but I think that this movie uses rape as the main idea behind the movie, which is motherhood and this idea of pitting basically good against evil. I know that that was kind of crazy and wild, but I I just had this theory of- It's not crazy. I'm I'm following you. It started um, with, with- Years and years of people telling me that I was crazy because I would go back for the cat too. Who wouldn't go back for that cat? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, the cats, <laughs> I, you know. But th- this is where it stemmed right. from that Ripley goes back for the cat because she is his mother. Well, uh, let that be something to marinate. Something think about to mull that. over. Something to think <laughs> about. Um, would you go back for your yeah. cat? Yeah. Would you? Uh, write us let us know would you would you have gone back for your cat or dog we want to know yeah i mean i having i'm one of those people that like uh triple checks to make sure that i've locked my front door before i leave my dog um home and i make sure i unplug certain things just because the idea of a fire happening while i'm gone um i've got paranoia about it so yes i would uh go back i'd be one of those people that drowns trying to save their dog it's really obvious why we're friends justin yeah um we should we should talk about the sequels just very briefly because yep. there there is a a lot that has happened with the alien mm-hmm. the 40th anniversary in the last 40 years a lot has happened with the story Ooh. that began with alien we had aliens which 1986 which is directed by james cameron which was a pumped up action film. Uh, Way more of, of an action film than horror and, uh, or sci-fi. And I will say, uh, as far as sequel goes, and we had a episode uh, not too long ago, which we talked about sequels. We specifically didn't talk about Aliens mm-hmm. because a lot of people consider that to be one of the few movies where the sequel is better than the original. I 
don't agree with that necessarily. I do think Aliens is a great film. I think that as far as sequel goes, it's about as good as you can do with a continuation of a story and kind of changing the tone, like amping things up. Um, then we had Alien 3. There's a lot of controversy with Alien 3. A lot 3. of controversy, yeah. A lot of hatred toward Alien 3. I, I feel like, to me, Alien 3 is a film where... You know, Are you going to throw shade at Alien 3? I'm not, here's what I'm going to say about Alien 3. <laughs> okay. I feel like with Alien 3, you had a very visionary director, uh, David, David Fincher. Fincher who much like... First film? His first feature, yeah. and much like Ridley Scott came from a commercial music video background had a very specific idea except for with him there was a lot of studio meddling going on his movie kind of got taken over i'd love to see a director's cut of alien 3 of david fincher's vision he dis he disowns alien 3 uh the last thing i'll say is i i just think it's more of a i've never really been a hater of alien 3 but i do think it's it's more of a standalone film it's 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 its own movie it is, yeah. I think Aliens is kind of, yeah, pumped up version of the first one. Yeah. In Alien 3, we have Ripley who one thing leads to another, ends up on a planet, uh, ends up on a planet that's just an all-male prison. It's real weird um, setup. I feel like it could have been, I feel like it could have been really good. And I, I don't hate Alien 3 by any means. And I think one of the most standout visuals, if anyone, um, if you think about the Alien franchise, is of Sigourney Weaver head shaved with the alien like right up against her face. And that's from Alien 3. Yeah, no, that's true. I totally forget that that sort of image is is definitely burned in my brain as far as like being one of the iconic uh, moments from an Alien movie. I'll say this. I only the last time I saw Alien Resurrection was when it came out in the theater. I don't remember Really? Yeah. I don't remember thinking too much of it, but I don't remember a whole lot about it, but I will say this. That is a movie that people like they, they act like it's the worst film ever made. It they, is not they, the they worst told, film ever they, made. So I I can't speak for that movie too much. Um, I will say it's the same director as Amelie and Delicatessen. Yeah, and, and, and interestingly enough, all of the Alien films, the first four, were all made by these like sort of like quote unquote visionary directors. Yeah. After that, we had this sort of like strange offshoot of Alien versus Predator. I've seen both of them. The first one, to me, was like whatever. I, I you know, I mean, yeah. it was. It was watchable. The second one, I don't think I could make it through it. Um, I've seen Prometheus three times. I'm not a fan of it. I like that we're going back to the this sort of lineage. I don't know. To me, it's like part overkill and part like, why do I keep watching it? Because I, the, there's something fascinating about it that interests me. I feel like they could have done such a better Again, job. Again, directed making... by really Scott, going back yeah. to his roots, you know. And I feel like he took some things from Alien that weren't in the first one or that were in the original script and kind of put them in um, Prometheus. Yeah. But I think that the idea that this being a prequel to Alien kind of got lost because Prometheus kind of felt like a movie on its own, but then it was like taking like good nuggets from the Alien franchise and and putting it into that. I feel like it was just kind of a cop out. I, I think it could have been to me better, but I me, liked it. Yeah, to me, Prometheus is like 
I don't know if it's like a total mess or if it's like <laughs> I keep watching it to find out that I'm wrong. <laughs> and uh, Alien Covenant, I saw when it came out in theaters. I haven't seen it since. I'll say this about Alien Covenant. To me, it felt basically like a modernized reboot. And it's, again, Ridley Scott. It just felt like he was trying to do a reboot of the original Alien. It was pretty much the same story. I didn't hate it. To me, it was kind of like The Force Awakens with Star Wars. It's like a reboot of the original. It's like a modern audience can watch this. Who thinks Alien, the original, is a slow that's what made movie. it so good. But but the thing is, is like, and then you know, I'm not bagging it's on not modern audiences, either, but but I, but, I, but I'm just saying, like to me, a reboot. It was like a sped up version yeah. of the original Alien. Didn't hate it. Didn't really think too much about it. But there's a lot. A lot has happened in 40 years. This this character has you know, and, and Ripley's not been on board since like 1997. Yeah. Um, tomorrow, if they put out a movie that had Sigourney Weaver. An alien? Oh, an hell alien. yes. I'd be first in line. I'd go see it. We should probably yeah. so move the, on. So the, so that's a run through of the uh, 40 years of <laughs> sequels and reboots and what have you. Um, I'm sure there'll be plenty more. You know, Let's hope there's a really good one that Ridley Scott does and Sigourney wants to the be al- in again. The Alien franchise will outlive us all. Um, so let's move on to our... <laughs> Um, we had some pretty interesting picks of the week for yeah. The, we both went for deep cuts on this deep old cuts. Super old. Well, I'll kick us off here. I went with Blue Collar, uh, connected to Alien via actor with Yafet Koto. This is a movie I had seen a few times, but I hadn't watched in a while. This movie is I I do a podcast just on Blue Collar. This is Paul Schrader coming off of writing scripts for Rolling Thunder and Taxi Driver. And this was his first film as a director. Again, I'd put it up there on the list of best directorial debuts. To be honest, I think it's probably Paul Schrader's strongest film. This is a movie, like I said, with Alien, had a lot of heated battles on the set between the actors um, not getting along with each other. Uh, This is a movie that starred Richard Pryor, Yafet Koto, and Harvey Keitel. They all are very, very broke. They're working for a union in an automotive plant in Detroit back when automotive plants were thriving and huge. They're overworked. They're underpaid. They're all totally, totally like at their wits end with being broke. This is a movie like a lot of 70s movies where we hang out with the characters. The main plot of the movie is they're all really broke, they're all kind of sick of it. They decide that they're going to rob the safe that's at the union headquarters of the union that they're in. When they rob the safe, they find out there's only $600 in it, but there's this ledger. They find out that the union's been making all these loans, kind of almost like mafia stuff going on. So they decide that they're going to blackmail the union. Well, inevitably, they realize that the union basically is like the mafia, and the union comes down on them hard, ends up killing one of them, the other one manipulating and it, it it's a very bleak film it's a very thrilling film it is a very important film because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this movie that's so relevant today and it 
again, I've seen this movie a bunch of times, but I watched it last week and there's a scene. And I'll, again, I'll say this Richard Pryor, mostly known for comedic roles. And he has some funny bits in this. This is definitely one of his few, if only dramatic roles. I would have loved to seen Richard Pryor do more dramatic roles. Cause he is great in this. And there's a scene toward the end where Richard Pryor and Harvey Keitel are having it out because their friend's been killed by the union and Richard Pryor has been promoted. That's their way to shut him up so that he doesn't go against the union. And Harvey Keitel is like, what are you doing? Our friend was killed. And, and Richard Pryor says, here's the thing. You're my friend and I respect you, but you're thinking white right now. And Harvey Keitel is like, what the hell does that mean? And Richard Pryor lays this out on him like, you have opportunity, man. Like, they're giving me this little tiny inch of power. He's like, I can't go to the cops. The cops, he's like, I'm a black man that just now is getting a little bit of power. He's like, you have all these opportunities. You don't even realize, like, when this is all said and done, you can still do something. I'm screwed. If I got the next six months to do whatever I can do, I have to take that, man. Like, you don't understand. And it's, like, so relevant right now. And this is a movie that should really be seen now like I think it it was it was so ahead of its time and not necessarily not really ahead of its time it was just speaking the truth but it was a truth that most people didn't want to hear or they wanted to ignore and there's a lot going on in the movie but all said and done it is a character study the acting is phenomenal the relationships are phenomenal it is is it's it's a hangout movie you're seeing these characters party and become friends and i'll say this the characters themselves they're not really respectable men they're cheating on their wives they're lying they're stealing but it does really give you a glimpse of this part of america that's that is the underpaid the forgotten and it shows you when people are in desperation the links that they'll go to to try to just get ahead, even if a little bit. And I think it really puts that underneath the microscope. It is an ensemble cast. It is one where the actors all had different methods. And so there was a lot of clash amongst the actors. Paul Schrader was going to quit the movie. Uh, he was brought to tears by fighting with the actors. I would not have known any information because they are so good. They look like good friends. And there's actually a scene where they have to separate because now that the police have been involved and they say, well, it's two black guys and one white guy. They say, well, from here on out, we can't hang out together. We have to separate because we're just going to look guilty. And you see that even though they're, they have the differences, they're like real friends at heart. And these moments that they have, like where they're hanging out drinking at this bar outside the automotive plant, or like those are their moments of happiness um, in this bleak world they live where they're just, they can never get ahead. And it's, man, it's a movie that really blew me away. Again, like I'll say, one of the most bold and like amazing directorial debuts from a director. Man, I really want to watch this. I mean, I have always been a fan of Richard Pryor and seeing him in a dramatic role. I, I would love to. And I was like just flipping through a little bit of history on this movie and just the photos involved with it. And as you're telling me about it, I'm like, Whoa, I really want like, uh, you'd appreciate it. I probably so anyway, would. <laughs> that's my pick of the week. Blue collar 
written directed by Paul Schrader, starring Yafet Kodo, Harvey Keitel, and uh, Richard Pryor. So your pick of the week was The Children's Hour, 1961, yeah. directed by William Weiler. Weiler. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about this movie? I'm very interested. So I'm going um, almost as far back as our first episode when everything was Ed Wood that we talked about. And for this one, I already said my connection was the other female character in Alien, that being the character of Lambert, who's played by Veronica Cartwright. Really quickly on this actress, she's been around forever. Everything from Leave it to Beaver to The Twilight Zone to Hitchcock's TV show and The Birds. She's made or she made the rounds as a kid. Just kind of like everybody during the 60s and and, and the 70s that were somewhat successful. Um, And she's still in plenty of movies and television today. Definitely a hardworking actress. And and I'm an X-Files fan. And she literally played the key to everything and all the mysteries of the X-Files, too. So... Much love for Veronica Cartwright. But for this week, she plays a bullied little girl who finally breaks her silence in covering up this giant lie in 1961's The Children's Hour. So there's a good chance, unless you're a fan of Audrey Hepburn, Shirley MacLaine, or James Garner, um, or you know something about gay representation in early cinema, you may never heard of this movie. It was written by Brilliant and blacklisted as a communist playwright of her day, Lillian Hellman. She was kind of a big deal back in the day. Uh, the Children's Hour is about a grade school-aged all-girls boarding school run by Hepburn and McLean's characters. Now, the guts of the story stems around one of the worst child villains of all movie history, this little sociopath named Mary, who starts spreading a rumor about the headmistresses having a a romantic relationship. Now, once the rumor hits, all the girls' parents rip them out of school. This little girl ruins the lives of two perfectly fine women with a lie that she keeps embellishing upon because she has a grudge towards them for punishing her for being a rotten little kid. This movie is just shy of 60 years old, and of course, times have a-changed since then. And although the the words gay, lesbian, or homosexual are never actually uttered in the movie, and even McLean herself says that she and Hepburn didn't fully understand their characters, I call BS on this completely. There's no way they didn't understand what was going on, but I'll get to that in a moment. The Children's Hour is uncomfortable from a 2019 eye. Being gay is called, you know, unnatural or treated like a sickness, something to feel the utmost shame about. What I find the most interesting about the stories, though, is that it's based upon an actual incident from 1810 involving two boarding school headmistresses, and the women eventually do triumph over this whole thing with a libel lawsuit, but the damage really has already been done, and any victory seems somewhat hollow. The movie pretty much mirrors the actual story. And Hellman caught a lot of flack for this play, which was originally produced in 1934, and a lot of people attempted, or there was kind of a movement to ban the play. It was also said to have lost the Pulitzer Prize that year because it was so controversial. Two years later, or like a year and a half later, director William Weiler wanted to make it into a movie, but the ratings board said this wasn't going to fly, so the lesbian subtext was replaced with a heterosexual affair and the movie was made under a different name totally boring but obviously Weiler never forgot about this and he came back around to it to remake the movie I'm talking about today in 1961 
So Cartwright's character eventually does come forward and says that the little evil troll monster Mary made her lie. It's the same outcome, though. The boarding school closes and these women's lives are ruined and they have to leave town. Here's the real sucker punch, though. We spend the whole movie knowing that these women have been wronged by these lives and their lives are essentially over socially. Like they literally have to move out of town. That's just how it was. But here's the big plot twist. McLean's character is in love with Hepburn. And while it's only suggested twice before Little Miss Evil Mary decides to make up this giant lie, we don't actually know for sure until McLean's positively unbearable coming out scene. And yes, there was a coming out scene in 1961, and boy, was it painful. For a few reasons. One, the anguish of McLean realizing her sexuality. And two, because she feels anguish at all and that it's completely sickening to her. And she says this. And even after all of this, Hepburn's character says that she still wants McLean to run away with her and leave town. I mean, what other choice did they have? But she doesn't shun her. She's like, you're my best friend since we were kids. We're, we're leaving together. But it doesn't really stop there. And because this is still the age of when gays were being punished for their sins in movies, naturally, McLean's character hangs herself. Big spoiler there, if you were planning on uh, looking this movie up, but it's kind of a well-known fact that that's how it ends. The only redeeming part um, at the end of the movie is Hepburn's final scene, which is at McLean's funeral, and she passes all of the townspeople who who don't know that McLean, uh, you know, had feelings actually towards Hepburn, and and all the townspeople have now realized that it was a lie but she passes all of them that are at her funeral with the coldest silence with their chin held high. I mean, how else are you going to end that movie? It's just depressing. Now, watching the solid trifecta of Hepburn, McLean, and Gartner is pretty rad. Um, they're all powerhouses in their own right, so communicating this heavy subject matter seems kind of effortless on their part. And, and Cartwright really goes through a range of emotions as a bullied scapegoat for Mary's lie, and she's a really impressive child actor. And obviously grew up to have that be something that's totally natural. I know this doesn't sound like the happiest movie ever made, but it's one of some significance. It's important to realize how far gay stories have come in the eyes of American cinema, thus reflected in movies, um, all the while ignoring the fact that half of Hollywood has always been queer anyway. But The Children's Hour is an important watch. And if you like old movies, or any of the main actors, totally go for it. It's rentable on streaming services, and there's kind of a crappy version available for free on YouTube for the time being anyway. But it's worth checking out. I remember watching it in college for a women in cinema class that I took. And uh, I think it was shown for like a gays in cinema class I took. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen it numerous times. It's, it's worth watching. I'm excited to check this one out. It's such like an acting powerhouse. And uh, I'm also glad that you um, found yet another movie that I haven't heard of. I like that you're always finding these movies that are still kind of rare to me. Same goes for you. I feel like you and I have a good like simpatico in this way that like we we like a lot of the same things, but like we both are coming from two totally different areas 
where like you would like the movies I like, but you've never seen or heard of, and I would the same goes for me. There's mutual respect, mutual appreciation. Mm-hmm. I think that there's yeah. I mean, I mean, I do like Legend though by Ridley Scott, and you definitely don't. So we do differ on something. Oh yeah, I mean, no doubt. There's <laughs> plenty of differences, and you know. So we'll keep things moving along here pretty quick. Uh, we'll go back to some alien talk here from our friend Justin Hayward. Always happy to have him on the show. When I was about 16 or 17, I borrowed my grandpa's home video camera and was making a movie with one of my friends, something I did often. Because I was using an old video camera and not shooting on film, I always tried to find ways to make it feel less like a cheap home video and more like a movie. I remember telling myself that the reason movies and theaters looked so much better than anything on a video camera was the color red. Red in the theater popped off the screen in my opinion. It was so vibrant, no video camera at that time could replicate the color red with anywhere near the electricity projected in a movie theater. Of course no video camera at that time could replicate any color shot on film, but red was the color that stuck out to me. So I convinced myself that the reasons movies shot on film look so much better than my cheap video camera is because of the vibrant reds. Cut me some slack, I was a teenager with zero tangible knowledge of photography. I don't remember when it hit me, but at some point I was framing a shot, something I wasn't particularly good at back then, when it occurred to me that if I backed the camera up and zoom into roughly the same frame, the image suddenly looked a little more like, well, a movie. There was something about the compression of the background of the foreground that happened when I backed up and zoomed in, as opposed to being closer to the subject in a wider frame, that looked inherently cinematic. Getting further away and zooming in seemed to help for some reason. From then on, I was always backing up and zooming in, even for so-called wide shots. Sometimes I would go all the way down the block and my actor friend and I would have to yell just to hear each other. At a certain point, maybe around college, maybe shortly after, I realized what I liked about backing up and zooming in is it created a telephoto lens effect that I happen to think looks really lovely in movies. Before I go on, let me give you a brief description of what the telephoto lens look is. I went over this in detail in the Stand By Me episode, so if you want a more detailed description, go back and listen to that episode. But for the sake of time, I'll try to quickly sum it up. A wide-angle lens gives the effect of the background looking much further away than the foreground. Think of a peephole in your front door. The person outside looks huge, but your neighbor's house across the street looks 100 yards away. When you put a telephoto lens on a camera and move far away from your subject, the objects are compressed so your foreground subject could look like they're standing 20 feet in front of the house across the street. That's how much different lenses change your perspective on a camera. I'll reuse my baseball analogy I used in the standby me episode. Think of a baseball game on TV. When we get the shot behind the pitcher looking at the hitter as he gears up, it seems like they're exactly the same size, even though the hitter is about 60 feet further away from the camera than the pitcher. The reason is the camera is way off field and zoomed way in, which compresses the image and makes the two players look like they're right next to each other. This telephoto lens effect is a go-to for a lot of our favorite film directors. Think of the British influence on Hollywood movies in the late 80s and early 90s. You had the brothers Tony and Ridley Scott hit us with films like Alien, which we're talking about today, Blade Runner, Top Gun, Days of Thunder, and on and on. You had Adrian Lyne with Flashdance and the notorious telephoto lens scene on the street when she randomly watches a guy breakdancing, which was awesome. Okay, fine. My point is this. For some reason, I have always gravitated toward telephoto lenses as a style. I think they look great, and most of the filmmakers that fall back on them tend to have movies that I also think look great. So as I got older and studied more of my favorite filmmakers' common lens choices, it always surprised me directly 
directors like Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese very rarely use telephoto or long lenses. They gravitate much more to wider lenses. There are a few reasons for this besides their personal taste in my opinion, and one of those reasons is because fast camera movement becomes more pronounced when you're on a wider lens, and anyone who has seen a Martin Scorsese film knows the man loves fast dolly moves. But what I find interesting is as I get older and more experienced, I found I started gravitating back to wider lenses. Not necessarily because they make dolly moves more pronounced, but because there's more opportunity for dynamic compositions. Because the background seems so far from the foreground on a wider lens, you can place subjects in the front and back and move things around here and there to create a wide range of depth with balance. Thing is, this wasn't something I thought about as a teenager. My compositions weren't great to begin with, so in some ways, the compression effect of backing up and zooming in kind of hid the fact that I didn't know how to properly compose a frame. I feel like the telephoto lens, because it's so stylized, somehow gives you room for mistakes, if that makes any sense. I sort of equate it with today's very shaky handheld style in some films. I won't reference any movie in particular, but some directors choose to shake the camera so much we sometimes can't tell what the heck is going on, which can sometimes hide the possibility of bad staging of the actors or a bad composition. Since the camera is shaking all over the place, by definition there isn't a chosen composition. Short story long, I've swung my taste around to using wider lenses these days. I like them. They're cool. Then, darn it, Mr. Johnson asked me to do a segment on Alien and the first thing that came to mind was how beautiful director Ridley Scott used telephoto lenses in that fantastic sci-fi horror masterpiece. The scene where Harry Dean Stanton gets it by the fully formed alien after searching for the lost cat is, I don't know how to put it in words other than stunning to look at. The chain swinging with the dripping water and the dapple color contrasted lighting is so beautiful. Then Ridley shows the full power of the long lens in a scene that is already stunning to look at. He puts on a telephoto lens and shoots past the swinging chains onto a medium shot of Mr. Stanton. The chains are out of focus, but because of the foreground background compression, they look like they're the size of Mr. Stanton's arm. The swinging chains, although totally out of focus, are huge in the frame and literally distort the image as they swing back and forth. It looks so freaking cool. But it also, and most importantly, it creates a tension as to where the alien is. Those chains could be the tail of the alien, or they could just be chains. Wide-angle lens could never produce such a cool and effective feeling of dread that that shot created, and it reminded me that the best directors aren't using a particular style to hide their bad side. They use their style to lift up the best of themselves. So sorry for the shaky cam handheld comment to you directors that like that. For a brief moment in time, I thought long lenses were a bit of a crutch, just like the extreme shaky handheld. But you know what you're doing better than I do, and I love anyone directing films with purpose and confidence. Writing this segment has made me see your light. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for being on the show again, Justin. We always love having you on. We're going to keep on trucking. Here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking.
The year that Alien came out, Billy Murray was at the top of his SNL game. And anyone who's ever been a fan of Saturday Night Live knows that the show's never been a stranger to controversy. And you know, I think this might be the first time I talk at length about an entire SNL skit. I kind of can't believe I've made it this long without doing that. All right. In 1979, there was one sketch that made some SNL players uncomfortable, including Billy. And it was called First He Cries. The parody sketch was based off an autobiographical book and made-for-TV movie called First You Cry. It was written by a well-respected journalist um, at the time, Betty Rowland. Um, She was happily married and living her best life until she found out she had a malignant tumor in her breast and had to have a mastectomy. Now, we know that SNL doesn't shy away from being tongue-in-cheek, and the writers put very few limitations on themselves, but yikes, how are they going to pull off poking fun at something like this? The sketch starred Billy, Gilda Radner, Jane Curtin, and the host for that week, TV legend B. Arthur. This was pre-Golden Girls and post-mod fame. Now, B. Arthur plays the doctor delivering the bad news uh, that Radner's character has breast cancer and needs a mastectomy. Uh, As an aside, it's very unfunny that Radner herself would later develop ovarian cancer, but that's a whole other thing. The subject matter doesn't necessarily seem comedic on the surface, but if the point of the sketch is about a selfish man-baby's reaction to his wife having a mastectomy, well, you might see where this is going. And our Billy has the pleasure of playing that role in this instance. Billy plays the husband character with the most repulsive, insensitive, childish behavior by being unable to deal with his quote-unquote deformed wife. The language Billy uses is truly repugnant. And Betty Rowland really did deal with her husband's uh, incredibly poor reaction to her mastectomy. And Radner, Curtin, and B. Arthur in the sketch perfectly explain away Billy's need to go through all of the emotions that he needs to experience in order to come terms with his one-breasted wife. The, the, the whole setup is so sarcastic, it would put Darlene Connor from Roseanne to shame. It's just like... It's so glaringly obvious. The sketch is completely making fun of men, even if it's in very poor taste. Well, as you might imagine, in the late 70s, this didn't fly very well with audience members. I mean, even now, it might not fly well with audience members. Um, The night that it aired, NBC received just about 250 outraged phone calls and over 300 subsequent letters from people who were upset over the sketch. And one viewer actually tracked down B. Arthur at her hotel. Like, that's a little, that's a little much. That's got to be kind of scary, actually, if you're B. Arthur. Um, But there was one person who wasn't upset. The person without whom this sketch wouldn't have even happened. Betty Rowland herself. And she wrote into the show, I wasn't the slightest bit offended. And if I had been, I don't think it should matter. Um, You kind of have the right to satirize anything. And the more unlikely the subject matter, the better. I thought the premise for the sketch was terrific. It should also be mentioned that some of the actors and writers involved with the sketch had mothers, sisters, and friends who had had mastectomies or were undergoing breast cancer treatment at the time. The sketch wasn't about making fun of any of that, but the subject matter is so sensitive, that's kind of all it appeared to be at the time. 
and it was said that Billy was the most mortified of anyone by the bit and told one of the writers, do you know what it's like to go out there and play something that's going to make people hate you? The potential for this tastelessness was not lost on anyone, and Billy's character was the most detestable, even if it's slightly comical when you watch it. Although I haven't found any recent reflections on the sketch, I doubt it really matters to anyone anymore, but at the time it was kind of a big deal, and some say it was part of SNL's dive into kind of poor, tasteless humor at the time, which led to much of the cast leaving at the end of that season, including Billy. This was actually his final season, season five. So the same year, Alien was making people run out of the theater barfing into trash cans of movie theaters. This SNL sketch was upsetting America and assisting in the original SNL cast members wanting to make their exit even faster. I tried to mine out as much info as I could on this story, and I know it's kind of an anticlimactic ending just telling you about this tasteless sketch um, that Billy was totally not a fan of. So I'm going to leave you with a little bit of uh, this, this, this quote that I found in this, I don't know, sometimes I just watch videos of Bill Murray being interviewed, where he actually talked about working um with b arthur on this whole episode and um you know when he when he gives some compliments i like to spread it around and i have a dog named b arthur so of course i'm gonna want to share this anyway this is what billy had to say about um that particular episode season five episode five working with b arthur i wouldn't have thought i would have given a hoot and a holler about b arthur i mean I thought, who was this dame? But you know what? I was very impressed with her. She was amazingly professional, and you gotta be walking through that door. But she was game. She had all kinds of chops, and she could do anything. It's true. B. Arthur was kind of awesome. So is Billy. I agree. <laughs> so this Murray moment, I guess, has been brought to you by all the awkward SNL sketches in history. It probably won't be our last in this podcast either. Well, I think that's interesting because I think even to this day, there's sketches that SNL has done where they've outraged people. And uh, humor can be misguided. I mean, I think even now there's more and more comedians are on the defense about like what what the standard of like what should be considered humor yeah. and where the line is between humor and being offensive is. It's interesting to kind of reflect back on on what was considered offensive then and 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 like you said like 250 collins which was probably like to the station was a big deal at the time like they were like super upset about that and no one probably talks about that now but i've never heard this story so yeah no and and this sketch if you have hulu this season of snl is available on hulu and you can watch this episode and you know what like I admit I laughed at it and 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 I have friends that have gone through breast cancer treatment and have had mastectomies and and relatives the punchline is not about breast cancer it is straight up making fun of this real life woman's husband's reaction to it and how dumb it is and it's unfortunate you know like kind of how it went down and you know that even that that Bill Murray felt uncomfortable doing it but you know what if i were him i probably would have felt super uncomfortable too 
Well, thanks again, always for the Murray moment. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, uh, that I was tried to wait from uh, stay away from Sigourney Weaver this whole podcast, even though we talked about Alien. Right. But you know, I think we just have to succumb to the fact that Sigourney Weaver is going to be a part of the podcast, like more so than not. I have so many questions for the woman. Yeah, so many questions. That was your Murray moment, Lindsay. Is there anything else uh, we can say about Alien that we haven't said already before we uh, close it out? I've got one more thing, one okay. tiny little tidbit that the the name of the ship Nostromo actually comes from the name of a book written by Joseph Conrad, who's a well-known, very well-known author that Ridley Scott is a fan of. It mirrors, I mean, not completely, but mirrors in a lot of ways um, kind of what happens to Ripley in the way that uh, the company that she works for is using the crew as expendable in order to bring back whatever creature this is. We, we see definitely in the second one, but we understand that it's the same kind of premise in, in Alien if they are to come across like something like this, that it doesn't matter if anybody dies, the company is screwing you over in order to get back whatever this thing is and what happens in the joseph conrad book is that the uh one of the main characters is in essence screwed over out of greed um by the by the company that he works for so a little a little tie-in there i like that you know that was a good tie-in yeah if you didn't know i mean there are t-shirts with nostromo on it so yeah if you're wearing it that's a little factoid you can throw in next time. So much has been said about this movie, so maybe we haven't said anything that hasn't been said already, but it has been enjoyable. This is a classic. There's movies we've shied away from and because there's been like three books written on yeah. the, in the movies, and it's like, what's left to talk about? But it was too tempting to do the 40th anniversary. Of 40th Alien. anniversary, you have to. I do have one question for you. What's that question? What is maybe the n- one thing that you take away from alien that's haunting or bothersome or just something that you take away from the movie the, that always stays with you. The one thing that stays with me with alien is when Harry Dean Stanton is killed by the alien. Cause you love him. Not just because I love him, but I don't, there's something about cats eyes Mm-hmm. in the way that they see things and the camera holds on Jonesy's eyes and there's like this flicker and Jonesy's watching Harry Dean Stanton get killed and it's very unnerving. Yeah, that's and, a really And there's a very scene. and it's a close up on Jonesy and so it's very specific. I mean, I don't know that his death scene would be as traumatizing if you didn't have the close up of Jonesy watching him die. Because it's all the whole movie is about fear and like what your brain makes up in the in the yeah. negative space. And it is, but I I think it does create that um, look of like Jonesy knowing what's up. It's 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 not a look of it's not a look of horror. Jonesy's kind of just like watching it and then like all right, I'm out of here. But Jonesy's also like makes it out. Jonesy's yeah. been hiding the whole yeah. time because Jonesy's no Jonesy's. Yeah. But that Jonesy's that's one of Jonesy the, knows what's up. But anyway, overall, again, this is a movie I can keep going back to. If you haven't seen it, it's one that I I, I think it still terrifies. I think it's every bit as exciting and scary as it was when it came out. 
Um, not that I really remember. I was a kid when this movie came out, but I really enjoy it. I just, I just think it's just all around. To I me, think it's, it's near perfect. Yeah, film. it's a near perfect movie. Yeah. So that's pretty much it for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our next episode that we're doing, for- we're going to do what I consider to be one of the more underrated comedies of the 80s. And that's A Fish Called Wanda. And I, I have, can't wait to do this one. I can't either because it's a movie I, I definitely think has a cult following and it does. And there's a lot to be there's a lot to talk about. It's a great cast and this is one I yeah, I, I, I'm I'm interested I'm interested to dig into this one and uh, I hope that it's one that um that you listeners will be curious about. And and I kinda wanted to go, you know, we wanted to go comedy after digging into sort of yeah. the horror sci fi genre. Well, that's uh, that's going to be our next coming up. Uh, as always, if you want to find us on social media, we're the most active on Instagram. Don't push balls podcast. You can find us on Facebook. Don't push balls podcast. You can always find our most updated episodes. Don't push Though you can find us on all your favorite places to hear podcasts. If you want to contact us directly, there are no stupid questions asked us or no stupid recommendations. Yeah. Anything. Uh, don't push pause podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs>